beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Joshua Black. Joshua, how are you today? I'm doing good, Sean. I just got uh, great news. I'll be, uh, I'm actually, my PhD dissertation on grief dreams has been accepted. I'm going to be going to defense soon. So this is one of those moments uh, that it kind of seems very surreal because I never thought it would get here, um, but I am here and I'm still trying to take it all in. But I woke up really laid back and relaxed. It's probably the most laid back I've ever been in a long time, just because that that weight is off my shoulders. Yeah, that's incredible. One uh, last step to go, I guess, just defending it. Um, Great. I'm glad you feel great because, uh, you know, we'll get to feel that in this interview. Hopefully Uh, we have a really special one today. We want to jump right into it. Um, So we've got with us Megan Devine. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about her. Uh, She's on a mission to help people love each other better. Pacific Northwest writer, speaker, and grief advocate. She is the founder of Refuge in Grief, which is a hub of grief education and outreach. And uh, that's where she leads people through some of the most devastating times of her of their lives. So together with her team, she facilitates a growing catalog of courses, events, and training to help grieving people and those who wish to support them learn the skills they need to carry pain that cannot be fixed. Um, so Megan is the author of a new book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, Meeting Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand. And she's also been featured widely in the media, including the New York Times, NPR, Bustle Magazine, Modern Loss, and uh, her most um, prestigious appearance here on the Green Streams <laughs> podcast. So welcome, Megan. Thanks for having me. It's my most prestigious placement today. (laughs) Of yet. Yes, absolutely. No, we're just kidding. (laughs) We're just kidding. But you've been on a lot of great, you've had a lot of great experiences and a lot of media uh, stuff. And so, um, again, very excited to speak with you today. Yeah, thanks for having me here. So uh, I'm really curious. I've heard your name a lot, just like being in the grief field. People mention you. I think it's it's amazing. Like, did you ever think you would get to this place? Um, I know we'll talk about your journey and stuff, but just being recognized as a, like someone in the grief field. Yeah, honestly. I, <laughs> wow. uh, well, yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, question's over. All right. Let's, let's well, move on. no, no, no. I mean, I, I, I think this is a, an interesting thing to talk about. It's, it's not hubris over here. It's that when I first started this work. Uh, there was very, very little out there being talked about um, in the grief world that wasn't either pathology, like grief is a problem that you need to get over really quickly, or heavily religious. So in, in that sense, all it really took was one strong voice coming through and saying, wait a second, we have this all wrong. So it's, it's not really a surprise to me. I, I love it, and I'm very thankful for what's happened um, for me and for others. But I'm not surprised because when I when I started this five or six years ago, there was nothing. Yeah, that's a great point. There's been really a, a growing wave of um, support, community, and and more awareness about, I would say, you know, the what we're I guess missing in uh, our grief recovery and and grief, um, uh, you know, just helping each other when in the grieving process. So and and we've kind of seen that recently uh, through what we're doing. You know, when we started the podcast, we looked and we saw, and there's not many grief podcasts, let alone grief dreams. Well, there's no grief dreams podcast. So just that indication and, and you know, reading different books and, and seeing different people around us. So 
I think it's uh, it's a beautiful time now, and I'm really happy that people are paying attention a lot more. And, and you know, I think we're all just ready for that time to change. And like you said, away from not away from, but like <clears throat> not so much the pathology or the religious, um, you know, foundational aspect of it, but uh, something a little different that we're craving. Yeah, I think we're we're really ready for a different conversation. One of the things that that people really love to hear is that they're normal, right? Just because grief is painful or messy or confusing or a million other things doesn't mean that there's something wrong with that. And and I love what what you two are doing, which is talking about something that also doesn't get very much airtime, right? We don't talk about grief in general, which means that grieving people feel weird or like they're the only ones in the world. So it's it's important to start talking about all different aspects of grief and what it's really like for grieving people. It's so interesting because I I've only been in the field for a little while and like what I see is like oh okay yeah there's there's some stuff here you know but like you were a part of a different wave when you had your loss and when you went out there you didn't really see a lot so can you talk us through sort of what you saw when you suffered your loss? Sure. So I was a psychotherapist in private practice for a very long time. I was pretty accustomed to grief, both my own and other people's. And then um, my partner died in an accident. And it opened up an entirely new, different experience of, of death and of grief. And the tools that I leaned on through my entire life up until that point were useless to me in the wake of Matt's death. And even leaning on the tools that I knew as a therapist, the ways that I'd been, ways that I'd been taught, it's not that they were wrong, it's that they didn't fit. And the support that I received from friends, from family, from the community, from random strangers, again, it's not like most of them were mean, had mean intentions. It's just that they're part of this culture too in the ways that they had been taught to support somebody in great pain or wrong. So a lot, of the, a lot of the support that I received was cheerleading, right? As though grief were a failure of confidence. You know, you're gonna bounce back even stronger than before. Like, I just watched my partner drown in front of me. I, I don't really need a pep talk, right? Um, and being the good researcher that I am and early grief not being able to sleep, I did a lot of searching online for a voice that sounded like me, an experience that sounded like me, and I didn't find them for a long time. You know, what I found was heavily religious, which didn't fit me, or um, that old uh, Kubler-Ross stage model of grief, which if you, dive into her, if you dive into her actual writing, like she never meant for those stages to be used the way that they were. So they didn't work 40-something years ago when they first uh, made their way to the public scene, and they certainly didn't work almost 10 years ago when Matt died, and they don't work now. So it was frustrating for me to be in that much pain and feel like not only did I have this loss to survive, but I also had to defend my right to be in pain. I had to educate people on why, how they were helping wasn't helping. I had to work so hard to feel supported. Wow, that's a lot. And it's a lot to say, like, when you're grieving, you're then having to work extra hard to try to find those people to help you which is just like it's not something you want to do when you're grieving you want to like you want it there right like because there's so much energy being you know like just you know you're using so much energy just trying to get out of bed and 
and do some of the normal routines that you're actually having to go even further uh, for that. So have you seen now, like looking at the culture now, have you seen that a big wave um, in your own journey that now if you would have lost someone, you there are people there that you would find? Well, you'd find yourself, but if there's, if you went around, was there, are there people now that you're looking at? You're like, oh, wow. Like, I'm glad they're there. Absolutely. And the, the culture and the climate has changed so much in the last nine and a half or so years. Uh, there's some, some early voices. The one that I found first in all of my searches was Michelle Neff Hernandez from um, Widow's Voice. And through her, I found a lot of my my team, my people, the people who were widowed at a young age, uh, they were my lifeline. One of the neat things that's been happening is there are actually a lot more voices speaking about grief as a healthy, normal response to loss than there were, um, you know, even even five years ago. There are some amazing voices out there. I can actually get sort of tricked into thinking there's no more work to do. We've done it. We've made it better for grieving people and for people who want to be supportive because I spend a lot of my time in the world where there are amazing people doing amazing work, right? You look at uh, Nora's podcast, Terrible Thanks for Asking. You look at the, the site Modern Loss, right, where people are telling stories about death and love and grief. And those things are, are getting some traction and they're getting popular. And I can forget that out in the wider world, we are still a minority. Those of us talking about grief as a healthy, normal thing, we are still vastly in the minority. So it is getting better, orders of magnitude better than it used to be, and we have a very long way to go. That's a very good, um, that's a good analysis of it, and a great point. Um, and I think, uh, like I see that in what what we're doing, and, and it's, it's a reflection of that as well, where uh, we're lucky right now. I'm lucky. I get to have a lot of conversations. I get to, we get to meet people who, you know, we're surrounding ourselves. People talk about grief, talk about, you know, uh, dreams and, uh, whatnot. And then you, you definitely go into like maybe the Starbucks or the Tim Hortons or gas station, and maybe you see or have a conversation with someone and maybe they're suffering. I've had those moments. I've had those moments on the street talking to people. And it's very, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, we're living in a great time where a lot of, progressive ideas are coming forward and just like the notion you know obviously quality we're reaching for that towards men and women just like aspects of um empowering just you know youth to kind of make movements just to, even just the simple idea of men being able to cry this is all shifting i think all of us towards something better it takes people like you and the, your team who are the voices, who are the teachers to teach all of us, teach society and kind of bring us all together. So I'm really glad you have that support around you as well to keep you motivated. What, you know, that, that brings me to this next question is what motivates you moving forward? Is it those conversations with those people who aren't in your circle? Because you, you did touch upon the fact that, you, you know, the grief work is not done yet. Yeah, it's definitely not done yet. What motivates me? That's a great question because this this can be really hard work, right? Forcing a resistant culture to change and start recognizing pain. That's, that's not an easy job description. And also being immersed in other people's pain day after day after day is, um, is a lot. It's something that I am honored and privileged to do, and it is also a lot. So why do I keep keeping my, my hand in pain in that way? Well, it, 
it's related to what we were just talking about, right? Um, and, and my own experience. If I can make things better for somebody whose life just completely went sideways, then I'm going to do that, right? I'm, I'm going to do whatever I can to make things better for somebody whose baby just died or their sister just got diagnosed with cancer at 22. How can I not wake up and do that work, right? And I also think of it in, in some ways as an act of time travel, right? I do it for me. I do it for that person I was nine and a half years ago who found nothing. And there are people like that who wake up every single day. I, I'm really glad that you brought up um, gender equality, right? We've got gigantic conversations going on about gender and inclusion and systemic racism and privilege. All of these things, you know, I, I spend a lot of time talking about grief related to death. That's sort of my starting point. But the way that we come to grief related to death in good ways and in not good ways or skilled and not skilled ways, that's the tip of the iceberg. What I'm really talking about is how do we come to pain of any kind? When you meet with um, a, a woman whose young black son was gunned down at a random traffic stop, how do you listen to that pain? How do you listen to the LGBTQ or the trans community when they're saying, we are in pain? How do we respond to that? I mean, these are skills. Yeah. Absolutely. Without caring, you know, whatever ideas, concepts, maybe that you brought with you, you know, and sitting with them. And, and I love it because it's soul work. It's, it's, and soul work can be uncomfortable. Usually, most of the time it is uncomfortable in a lot of situations, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, yeah. But it's so yeah. necessary and you're feeding, you know, as a metaphor society with your soul work, you know, it's soul food. And that's what it's, that's the big thing about it. And that's what gravitated me towards this. And I'm sure Josh, like I could do it a lot of different things. And I, that's not me being, you know, ego or hubris. It's, I'm just saying like, I gravitated towards this because it was higher level, you know, it was a higher effort. I'm getting back way more than, you know, if I was to do, you know, whatever podcast on, I don't know, you know, types of water or something like that. I'm looking at water. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's I want... true. Like there, there are, there are a million different things that anybody can do to feel lit up and to be of service in the world. I think one thing that's often told said to grieving people or, you know, to one of the things that I heard um, because I was a therapist before Matt died was you're going to turn this loss around and make it into a gift and be so helpful to other people. And while that's, true that is actually what i'm doing i i think that that is a disservice right there are lots of beautiful ways to be of service in the world and i, I love that you said like this is soul work and soul work is painful sometimes it is and i i think that we were like ah it's painful let's not go there but avoiding what's painful is um is really cheating yourself of the beauty that lives inside that pain and if you keep saying, not going to go there, not going to go there, not going to go there, like, of course, that's your choice. And there's a lot of beauty and a lot of love and a lot of relatedness that we miss when we make a choice to turn away from what's painful. I like that. No, I really I really do. And I, I think it, it is. It's a part of our culture that we turn away from pain and we go towards things that are more pleasurable especially that you have so many distractions, it's really easy to find something <laughs> to distract you away from, you know, the, yeah. the pain. So what, what things have you found along your path in teaching others that helps them be able to face the pain? 
because there's a reason why they're avoiding it. It's, you know, it's yes to culture, but there's also, they're, it's very uncomfortable. So like what, what tips do you have for others um, or that you found in yourself that works for sitting with pain? Mm. So I think we can go in two different directions here. The answer is largely the same for, for people who want to be supportive when you hear pain in somebody else, a small thing or a big thing, the biggest thing we can do is acknowledge that pain. Acknowledgement is such a powerful medicine to be seen and heard in the truth of your own story, right? Whatever that is. Ow, I stubbed my toe and oh my God, my, uh, my brother was just killed in an accident, right? To be able to bear witness to that in somebody else is the most powerful thing you can do. And I think it's related when we talk about what things can you do to help yourself sit with your own pain. It's to acknowledge that you're in pain. I think we've, we've really internalized this idea that like, you know, you got to buck up and, and pull yourself out of it and put a smile on your face. And it's that, that approach is useful in a lot of things. It really is. I'm not down on positive thinking or um, changing your thoughts, all of those things. They're really super useful, but maybe not so much in acute pain. So this practice of asking yourself, what's really true for me right now? How am I feeling? And how might I tend to that? I think that's a really beautiful relationship with yourself and a relationship skill you can bring um, to the people around you too. It seems like that's really simple, right? Like here's this yawning chasm of pain and you want me to say, I see you as though that's going to do something. Yeah. It is yeah, that, something. That that's really um, that's a really key thing. That, that that really resonates with me. Um, I've gone through that in my own life in different um, different ways, but I've seen it around me as well. With um, and I can mainly speak about men. I've I've talked to men mostly in terms of like you know just seeing that that aspect of it, where sometimes we're a little bit uncomfortable, we're hesitant, and we're there's an aspect of masking. I always talk about, like talk about my back injury a lot, but you know, I've had back problems in the past. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've taken meds for it before, but what actually was important for me is not was to feel the pain so that I can then go through that. Cause when I numbed myself out and I didn't feel the pain, I wasn't sure if I was healing correctly and I actually needed a little pain to then know how to deal with it. And it turned out that movement was better for my back, walking around, not laying too much on it. But I think sometimes in society, we, we tend to mask that pain. We reach for the whatever cure is right away because maybe we feel like sitting in pain sometimes may, might make it fester or make it worse, like an open wound. And I think that that's, that's become harmful for us because it's actually, I think, the pain which is helpful. And and it, it just brings me to that point. I'll finish with this is that because people always look at someone grieving and they say, oh, they're, you know, they're, it, it seems like it's too long or it seems, or they, you know, they want them to rush them quickly to be their normal selves rather than seeing that that's a helpful thing for them. It's good for them. They, you know, they might see it as like, wow, man, they're out of society. They're, you know, they're on, they're out in the outskirts right now. We need to bring them back in. But I think, and it's also part of the person who's listening to that person, who's sitting with that person. 
you know, you have to sit in discomfort too, because you're going to be uncomfortable. You know, we had a friend recently, their mom passed away and I called them and it was odd because I felt a little discomfort because I wanted to say things to them to make them feel better. But I had to stop myself and just be with them. But there was a little discomfort there. So that that's that's a great point that you make that it's that the discomfort, the pain is also part of the healing. I like that. Yeah, I, I think actually looking for discomfort is actually the, the thing to do, right? If you're feeling completely confident and comfortable, you're probably not showing up in a useful way. That sounds kind of harsh, but here's what I mean, right? Like the fact that you felt a little uncomfortable listening to your friend's pain, that's a great sign because it means you're not trying to move away from the pain that is real. So discomfort in that sense is actually a really good sign. We just have to increase our tolerance for being uncomfortable. And that, that I also really, really love what you talked about with your, with your back injury and the, the pain there. Like what you described, it sounds like to me, is you, you developed a relationship with your body and a relationship with the pain in a way that let you make informed choices, right? I have a, a shoulder injury that I've been wrestling with for a while now, too, so I'm with you with the like, typical <laughs> back pain. Ah, it sucks. Yeah. But, you know, so, and sometimes I just want that pain to go away. Yeah. And I will do what I can to sort of less, like take the edge off of that pain. Yeah. But what you really described there is you, you entered into it and you asked your body questions. What feels better? What takes the edge off? What lets me be able to breathe a little bit more? And a relationship with pain is really what's called for. Not, oh, there's pain, shut it up, turn it off. Not gonna, it's, not, it's not gonna be there. Well, repressing pain in all of its forms, repressing it, which is different than a relationship with it, in my opinion, is the root of everything that's wrong right now, right? Repressing the, the pain, I mean, we, we talk about, you know, um, what happens with suppressed grief. I always love that when people are like, well, what about repressed grief? You want to know what repressed grief looks like? <laughs> it looks like a culture with a huge opioid addiction problem. It looks like epidemics of abuse and interpersonal violence because all of those actions that we commit against ourselves, against each other, against the environment are pain. They're all rooted in pain that never got to be expressed or heard or validated. It doesn't go away. It finds another way to speak. Mm. So I, I also like to talk about, um, I'm, I'm so anti the way that we do grief in this, in this culture. It can be like good, bad, you know, evil and not evil. I think it's more useful language maybe to talk about what's working and what isn't working given how helpless people feel in the face of somebody else's pain, given how unheard or criticized or dismissed grieving people feel, given our epidemics of abuse and addiction and all of those other things. To me, as a researcher, what that says is the way that we deal with grief isn't working because we've got a culture that is in a lot of pain. So maybe we need to think about our approaches to pain and maybe do something a little bit different. And that means we're going to be uncomfortable. And that's a really good sign. Yeah, I like that. Wow. <laughs> like all, all the stuff that you, you have said so far. And I think it's interesting. And you, you made a great point of that 
your grief, if you don't express it, it comes out sideways in a lot of different behaviors that you may never know until, you know, all your relationships break down or you become broke or you become addicted to something. And then you're like, I wonder where that came from. Why did I do that? And it's just, it's so far down the road. You can't really see that. It was just because, you know, you couldn't grieve. You weren't open to grieve and feeling the pain. And so I think that's, you know, it's a great lesson for anyone to say it's okay to feel. Like there's benefit in feeling. There's more benefit feeling than there is not feeling. You know, it's like, uh, yeah, it's like, what's it? Delayed gratification. (laughs) There's a a term for that, right? Where it's like, you know, you have to, you know, wait to feel that joy or happiness or the healing, but it'll come and your relationships won't suffer as you think they may, they may suffer if you just go back to the way things you think things should be. So I'm, um, I'm happy that you're doing the work you're doing and you're giving like really great advice to sitting with people, uh, get allowing people to sit with their suffering and you're able to sit with their suffering. So how long was it for you to be able to sit with their suffering? I'm guessing you're a psychotherapist, so you're pretty good at that prior, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's that, that wasn't necessarily a new skill set for me. I, I'm pretty comfortable with other people's pain and I feel like I always have been since I was a kid. That's sort of something I came in with. I oh, that's have a, that's learned. Go ahead. I would say that's amazing. As a kid, like you're that you're like you're bred to sit with people suffering. I think that's really strange, <laughs> but very amazing. <laughs> <laughs> was it because of your well, family I, I, or innate? Like, what's uh, what's going on there? <laughs> I think I think that's just I think that's just personality, mm, right? Yeah, sense of child. I feel like I have just by personality. I've always been attuned to the story behind the story mm-hmm. always been um, looking for the underdog and being an advocate and being um, a rabble rouser and a and a voice <laughs> you know for those for those who are getting the short end of things and i appreciate that about me i don't i mean it's something it's a it's an ability to witness and to see what's going on underneath the surface that i definitely practice but I'm also kind of amazed at it at the same time because it's also not something that I purposely set out to do. It it seems to have come in the hardware, which is pretty cool. I have learned over the years that I my capacity to witness other people's pain is not limitless. I think for a long time I thought it was because it's it's normal for me to listen and to to dive into things that a lot of people shy away from. But it isn't limitless. I do actually need to walk away from the work at times. I need to purposely go out and find joy because inside a lot of pain, that joy can be hard to find. And it absolutely colors my worldview. I know way more ways that a person can die during the course of an everyday, normal, routine day And if I'm not taking good care of myself and purposely looking for joy and refilling myself, I'm going to see those accidents everywhere, everywhere. So it's, it's an interesting balance doing this work and finding that I have to intentionally find joy and goodness and lighten up sometimes. I think that's a, that's a job hazard, both being a psychotherapist, you know, before and, um, specifically choosing this work, I need to take care of myself really well in order to be able to show up and listen and be that witness for the people I want to witness. 
That's nice. That's beautiful. So what do you do for uh, to when you're getting when you're feeling the heaviness? Is there something you go to? Usually for me, it's usually um, I need to get up and move my body. I need to go work in the garden. I, I dance tango. So I need to, that's one of the things that I do a lot. Actually, uh, two years ago when I was writing the book, when I was writing the manuscript that became the book, the only place that I could go that would make my brain stop thinking was tango. There's something <laughs> about, I don't know if you know tango at all, but it's a, it's a partner dance. It's a lead follow dance and there's no talking. I love it. I love that there's no talking. So you get to be connected and present with another human being, but you don't need to be chatting. And that sort of um, physical touch with music and movement is, is a really healing, restorative thing for me. Being out in the natural world, unplugged from all of the devices where the stories are tempting me. It's, it's hard for me to look away from the work because I believe in it so much. And because there's always so much work to do. So getting out into the, into the natural world, getting out into the gorge out here in the Pacific Northwest without the phone, without the headset, uh, all, of those, all of those things. Yeah. And also a, a practice of checking in with myself and how exhausted are you feeling right now? Do you need a break? <laughs> right? How's this, how is this showing up? And again, I go back to it's not right or wrong, the amount of work that I'm doing or the amount of stories I'm consuming. It's what are, what are the effects? How do I see this showing up in me? And using my body and the state of my mind to inform whether I need to step away from it or not. Hmm. Yes. It's really the baseline I've, I've been finding out is making sure you're okay in your core because you know that can obviously disrupt your interactions moving forward. If you don't check yourself then, you know, you could, or I'm just talking about myself, but, you know, you dip into maybe the negative or, or a comment rubs you off the wrong way. And I think that self-care aspect, you know, we, I hate, you know, that uses that word is overused these days, but, you know, it's really what it is, is, you know, just shifting your perspective. I love the dance aspect, you know, moving, using mm -hmm. senses in a different way. And also, you know, probably learning steps. You have to focus. You can't just you know, it and you're not having, you're not thinking about that movie you watched yesterday. No, you're in, you're in it. And then you're not going to, you're going to, if you're not getting it right, you're going to mess up. Your partner's going to look at you angrily. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, I, I get that a lot. Depends who you're dancing with, but yeah. <laughs> Are you guys in a good flow, by the way, right now? Are you guys good? You got it? You've learned your moves? Tangle's not that kind of dance. Mm. So where you like learn a certain choreography and, and it's, it's a really, really cool practice because to do it well, um, you have to be listening with your body. It's a call and response. I'm gonna, I'm gonna convert a whole bunch of new tango people. That's awesome! Yay, chocolate <laughs> yeah. tango. Uh, there, it's, it's a call and response dance. There is technique to it. There are quote unquote moves, but it's not like I know this set of things and now I can do it. It's really, it's really about connection. I, I live in uh, the Pacific Northwest and we have some amazing teachers who teach connection first, which mm. is different than technique first. Wow. And it's, it's so beautiful. You know, it's one of those things. And there's one of the things I love about tango, of course, is like the metaphors are all over the place. The more you are in your body, the better the dance will be. The more you can listen yeah. and respond. If you're in your head or you're trying to control it, 
it's going to be a very different experience than it is if you are in a relationship with the other person's body for that set of time and listening and responding. It's, it's a really, I love it. It's just, it's so gorgeous. It's also, it's like any long-term relationship. It's also really annoying sometimes and really vexing. And sometimes you fall out of love with it and you find new ways to fall in love with it. And it's, you know, it's a long-term relationship, at least for me. And it, it really does come back to, for me, that listening in a different way. I, think I, can get, I don't think I can get away from listening, but listening in a different way. I think that's amazing. And I don't think I've, we've heard many people go to the tango. Some people dance, but the tango is a very interesting thing. So I can see maybe the next book that you write will be something to do with tango and grief and the analogy there. <laughs> oh, there's a draft on the laptop. Oh. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. And so I'm curious, did, because Matt was your partner, right, that drowned. Did you guys do tango prior to that? Or is tango something new you learned after he died? No, tango is something new I got out here when I moved to the Pacific Northwest. So I picked that up. I think I'm in year three right now. Um, I actually picked it up just before I started working on the book, which was really fortuitous. By the time I started working on the manuscript, I was already uh, hooked on tango. So it, it wasn't a steep entry learning curve. It was something I was already fumbling around with. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I haven't done it, but you make me want to do it. So <laughs> Yay! watch out, Stop everyone. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it's so... really, really cool. Well, I see like dancing with the stars. Um, you think you can dance, all that sort of stuff. And it's like, man, like, I can't wait to have time to be able to do that. You know, like, it's probably one of those things mm. I'll probably, you know, after um, the PhD is over. It's like, let's do some new things. Let's try some new things. Let's get out of like the yeah. box I've been in for so long. School is all consuming. School is all consuming. The, the, it reminds me of the, I'm reasonably sure it's the Dalai Lama who says uh, you should meditate for an hour every day unless you're too busy, then you should meditate for two hours. <laughs> That's so so there's, there's that as well, right? I think we can get into when I have time. Mm-hmm. I'll explore this. And there's a, there, I mean, there's a reality there. Don't get me wrong. Like I've been through grad schools and all of those things. And also I work a lot and there's a lot of work to be done. And going back to like, life is really short. And in order to show up, and I'm speaking for me here. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you to do anything, but like, I have to very, very much on purpose be like, I am so freaking busy. I have got to go out in the woods or I have got to make it to tango tonight. I don't care how tired I am because in order to do the work for me and to do the work beautifully, I have to actually force myself, no matter how busy or tired I am, to stop. Otherwise, I'm going to, like, all of my parts are going to wear out and I'm not going to be able to do this for the long haul and I want to do it for the long haul. Yeah, and you won't be able to inspire. And I think you got to be, as Sean was saying, you got to be at that core of your base. It's got to be good for you to continue to inspire people to become to 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 feel what you're feeling and to believe what you're saying and if you're you know all whacked up and you haven't done tango for you know three months and you're like (laughs) going all crazy people may not think that your way is the way (laughs) like okay what else is out there you know but because you're strong and what you know (laughs) like i want to be like that like i want to be where she's at you know, and they listen to you a lot more. And so I think that's great. I think it's great that you're finding these new ways. And I think people, 
if you're listening, you know, look out new, new different ways to, to experience the world and move your body. I think that's amazing. So my, uh, my one question is that you mentioned um, quickly that you had a hard time sleeping after the death. Did that get be- like did that get better over the years or are you still having issues sleeping? It took it took a long time. I'm that the sort of like acute phases of things. I woke up um around four in the morning every single day for over a year. Wow. Over a year. I would get up in the morning and be almost immediately exhausted and need to go back to sleep those sleep disturbances are really, really common. I'm sure you know all about these things, but the the sleep disturbances are a real thing. And sleep is the time when your body, your physical body restores itself. And I was not sleeping. And when I did sleep, I was having really intense dreams. I've always been a really intense, very detailed dreamer. And the dreams that I had in the, within the first year or two years after Matt died were exhausting, occasionally beautiful, but even the beautiful ones were exhausting. So sleep was hard. And, and on top of that, knowing that I wasn't getting enough sleep to be able to survive what I had to survive. So the, the stress, (laughs) the stress over not sleeping, creating less rest, right? Just that ongoing cycle. cycle. Yeah, that's a terrible oh, cycle. Gosh. I've been there. I used to work nights and stuff at the, my previous life, <laughs> my previous job. But uh, yeah, I've been there where you're, you know, it, it's a tough, tough psychological burden. It becomes a burden because, you know, with that lack of sleep mm-hmm. and you go throughout your day and you're trying to give to other people and you're not the version of yourself that you know you want to be or are. Um, so, you know, I felt that tremendous uh, lack of sleep. For For a lot of people going to bed at night or those sort of nighttime routines are really fraught, right? Nighttime is the time um, you often spend winding down with your partner or putting your kids to bed. And when you can no longer do that, that makes the evenings a really stressful time when maybe in your previous life, it was a time of sort of nesting in and getting quiet and um, being in relationships and, and all of those sort of sweet, homey, nesty things that let you have good sleep hygiene, right? Suddenly those things are traumatic, right? I'm going to bed by myself. There is no longer a little kid to put to bed, right? We think we can talk all day long about like good sleep hygiene and and making sure that you're rested. And here's what I did to help myself get rest during that time. I also want to acknowledge that in some ways that's an impossibility, for a lot of people. I work with a lot of um, widowed folks, especially people who were widowed, what we would consider at a younger point in their lives. And that facing an empty bed is hard. A lot of people can't sleep in that bedroom anymore. I slept on my couch for a long time, (laughs) a very long time I slept on the couch. Because going into that bedroom, going into that bedroom, knowing that I was the only one going into that bedroom and that I was going to wake up in the morning without him again forever was too much. So your, your original question there a minute ago was, what did I do with that? I was exceptionally fortunate that I 
had um, had enough support that I, I actually quit my practice the day that Matt died. And I had the financial support um, and the infrastructure support that I could sleep whenever I needed to. If I needed to sleep the entire day, I could sleep the entire day. If I needed to take a nap 10 minutes after I got up in the morning, as long as I took the dog out for a walk, I could go back to bed and sleep. So I had a pretty privileged, um, well-supported grief in those early days. And it's it's weird for me to, to think about it that way and to talk about it that way because I think we get sort of all tangled up in there's nothing privileged about pain. Uh, you know, there's nothing lucky about being in that kind of pain. And at the same time, like I talk in the book a lot about the difference between pain and suffering. And pain I think of as this pure thing, right? It's, it's just a, an immovable reality. And suffering is what comes with, um, you know, I've got so many responsibilities, I don't have time to take care of myself. It doesn't matter if I'm tired because everybody in the world needs me. I have to show up for work and perform. Um, there's a lot of suffering that comes if you are, by necessity, you have to keep going with your daily life. I didn't have that. So in a lot of ways, I was um, very lucky that I could be in as much pain as I was in and be supported in that. Wow, that's really interesting. And I think it's it's nice to be able to look back and, and see how some people aren't there, right? They have jobs they have to go to. And they got to sort of do what they can. And they they don't have that ability to sit with their pain like you're able to. And I think that's it's amazing that you had that opportunity. I really do. And you, you mentioned about these dreams and nightmares. And since this is the Grief Dreams podcast, <laughs> I thought I would, I would ask about those. Um, so you're saying, did you, have you had any dreams of Matt per se? Or were they just like random dreams of like weird circumstances? Both are true. In the in the early days, now I I have been fascinated and interested in dreams forever. Uh, I think one of the as a good Jungian trained therapist would be, but also I've always had really intense multi layered dreams. That is the way that my brain works, and and I think in general for for the brain, speaking in a wider thing here, that is like the dreams are the ways our minds and our bodies try to integrate reality on tiny levels and on great big levels. And so a lot of the dreams that I had in the early days were um, Matt would come back, but he wouldn't know he was dead. And I had to tell him he was dead over and over and over in so many different scenarios, so many different scenarios. And because I, I tend to um, think and speak and breathe in imagery, the imagery was really intense. And having to tell that story, having to tell my beloved over and over again, not just once a night, but many times a night, you died. We're not going to dinner tonight because you're dead. Do you not remember what happened? Over and over and over. And I know enough to know that I was telling myself that story in my dreams. But that's intense. That, that really um, is so complex, right? There's a there's a, a blessing in there of seeing his face and a nightmare in there of having to say those words. It's interesting, as you're saying, like sitting in the pain, and that's a very painful statement to say to someone you love. Yeah. 
Wow. That's wild. Wow. And then did those those dreams change as you started to, you know, process the pain? They happened less frequently. And there was a sadness in that too. Right? Because we're complicated beings. <laughs> the, the dreams themselves were intense and draining and painful, but he was there. And the further I moved on from the day that he died meant the further I moved on from his life, from our life together, which meant that he showed up in my dreams less often. What a cruelty that is. But I, I talk with my, my students and my readers a lot about um, what was it like the first day you didn't cry? And from the outside world, we would think, oh, hallelujah, you didn't cry today. And for the grieving person, sometimes it can be like, I betrayed my person. There's grief and there's loss in, quote unquote, getting better, in not being in as much pain, in having your person not be the first thing on your mind the second you wake up in the morning before your eyes open. It's hard. Yeah, it's so interesting. I've heard that a lot, actually, how people that, let's say, are having negative dreams of the deceased, um, they would say, well, I don't want to... I don't want to sort of heal or work on these blocks that they sort of that's representing in some way because they think that they're not going to dream, have these dreams of them anymore, because even though it's bad, they get to see them one more time. You know, that's what you're saying. It's like sometimes when people the fear of change, because even though it's just like it could be discomforting, there's still a sense of comfort within that of being able to see them again. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's cool that you're uh, uh, someone who loves dreams and is a vivid dreamer. And so you were a Jungian psychologist? No, not specifically oh. in that I okay. didn't, I didn't, um, well, that's a very specific um, training. Yeah. So you can't, it's, it's sort of like a, almost a trademark in a way. You can't be like, oh, I do this. But uh, that said that I didn't officially train with the Jungian Institute, but that was my fascination mm-hmm. in my, in my earlier days and in my practice was you know, all of those, uh, what we think of as Jungian ideas of archetypes and dreams and imagery and being curious about the images that come to us and making a relationship with that unseen world or that imaginative world. I think that that's a beautiful thing. I use those tools a lot. I used them. I used Jungian tools in my practice. I use them now. I use them with myself. I use them in the things that I um, suggest to my students and my my clients and my readers. I think it all comes down to, for me, um, a curiosity about your own self Mm. and a relationship with yourself. What what questions do you ask? There's a a writing prompt in the writing course that I do. So I I teach a 30-day writing course called Writing Your Grief. And um, one of the questions uh, has you well, actually several of the prompts have you sort of asking for an image and waiting for an image to appear. And what I love about that is when you ask your own self questions, you don't always get an answer, but you always get a response. And those are different things, right? That asking asking a question into your own self, into your imagination, into your dreams, into any of that stuff. You won't necessarily get an answer in the way that we think about it, but you will always get a response. That's cool. But in order to um, 
enter into conversation with a response, you have to have a relationship there. So for me, it always comes back to what's your relationship with yourself. Mm-hmm. I like that. That's great. And I'd love, I know we're, we're just running out of time, but I'd love to chat more about dreams with you and share some of the research. Cause I know it can help a lot of people that are um, going through loss. And that's the whole reason why I started this stuff, because when it comes to research on this, on this topic, there's just not much there, but most people um, will have dreams. I'm guessing you've heard a lot from people that have taken your courses or you've worked with one-on-one about the dreams of their deceased loved ones. Yeah, it's a, it's, you know, like so many things with grief, we don't talk about what actually happens. So a lot of people think that they're the only ones, right? When I talk okay. about dreams in my groups, yeah. people are like, oh my God, I thought I was the only one who did that. I thought <laughs> so I was the only one that happened to. Right? Random, and this, is, yeah. this is true. Yeah, I mean, this is true for everything, right? When we don't talk about it as a wider cultural conversation, when we don't talk about it in anything, in the Me Too movement, we're seeing this there too, in like in substance use, in depression, in mental wellness issues, all of this stuff, when we don't talk about it, people who are in pain think that they are the only ones. And that's why it's so important to talk about the realities of these things, right? Like, I love that you're focusing on something that doesn't get much airtime because people are alone in it or they feel like they're alone in it. And when we talk about it, we let other people um, know that they're normal, that it's okay to talk about these things. Like when you talk about stuff, you, you give everyone else permission to talk about it. And that's huge. Yeah. It's uh it's amazing. I didn't, I didn't know starting off, but when, when you start seeing these numbers, like just a random fact. So with, uh, widows uh 86 in the first year had a dream of the deceased and you're just like why hasn't this been talked about like most people are having a dream within the yeah. first year and you're just like this is insane because people think they're going crazy or people think they're the only one but actually not having a dream is is more rare and you're just like wow yeah like it just and flips I, think, it, right? I think there's something yeah and I, I think there's something else that we should talk about even just briefly along with that is that I think one of the things that can happen for people when they share, I had a dream of my person, because we've got a culture that is so quick to fix grief and to celebrate your return to quote unquote, being your normal old self, being positive again. If I say I had a dream of my child, the the people around you are going to be really quick to interpret that dream for you tell you what the meaning is, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, they're telling you that it's time to move on, yeah. right? Like, I don't care what you're dreaming about. It is nobody's business to interpret <laughs> your dream for you. Like, stop yeah. it. It's Making like... meaning for somebody else is rude. Yes. Right? <laughs> so what yes. do you do? If somebody, if somebody shares, like, I just had a dream about my sister, a really great response to that is, huh, do you want to tell me about it? Yes. You sit with their pain or their comfort. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. Like, let's just be curious about somebody else's lived reality instead of telling them what we think it means. You're going to, I mean, I still do this. You talked about this a minute ago with like, I still have this like impulse to jump in and make things better, right? Like, of course you do. I do. I do this work all the time and somebody tells me something that's painful and I am a part of this culture. I still have that impulse to soften the blow somehow. Um, I make mistakes. I make mistakes all the time. I hope what I'm willing to do is to either have it called out to me or recognize it myself and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just did that and make amends for that. Right. 
it's this isn't about suddenly becoming perfect interpersonally or perfect with yourself. It's about being committed to practice. Yeah. To um to invest in your relationship with yourself and with others and to to be curious and all of those things. When somebody shares something with you, um good, wonderful, painful, odd, challenging, something that confuses you, a much more useful response is to say, huh, do you want to tell me more about that? Or even, I'm not sure what to make of that. Do you want to tell me more? That's a beautiful, a beautiful way to finish off this podcast because you're preaching to the choir. Like where <laughs> we, that's the world, that's the world we're living in. You know how many times like people have come up, I've, I've witnessed people come up to Joshua Black and say, why don't you interpret the dreams? Right? Like, oh, oh, do you interpret them? And he's like, well, no, you know, that's not this, <laughs> that's not, that's not the point. And at the end of the day, um, I think, uh, you know, our one of our goals, not just people who are in the industry, not just people who are teaching other people, not just nurses, hospice workers, academics, it's the regular people that we're trying to speak to. And we're trying to change those opinions and those minds and just keep people to be able to sit with other people. Let's learn the basics about sitting with your family's dreams, you know, brothers, sisters, mothers, sons, daughters, all those people are who need to kind of just relearn that, relearn that sitting with each other because we're yeah. so far away from that. So we wanted to, again, just thank you for <laughs> bringing that up. You're preaching to us. <laughs> we want to finish off one last thing and then you got to go, <laughs> you know, you got to run, but um, we always love to ask our guests before they leave is uh, if they could have a dream of a loved one that's passed um, tonight and they can make that dream up, what would you want to make? Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh. I don't know. I mean, for me, there's a there's a difference between my brain dreaming with Matt as a character and a, a sleep experience in which I feel like he's been present. Uh, I would love one of those. I would love one of his ridiculously dorky jokes <laughs> that makes me laugh while I'm asleep like that would be awesome we're in um, at the time that we're recording this we're in birthday season for me my birthday was last week and Matt's birthday is next week uh, and uh, I, I know that means that that Matt is on people's minds you know his, his family and friends sometimes more often uh, than daily life and we're around birthday season and I just I, I would love that I would love a, a present for my birthday and for his birthday just to get one of those felt presence dreams with nobody, I mean, even even almost ten years after his death, nobody can make me laugh like that man. Uh, well, that's that's so cool, and it's it's funny you just got a glimpse of like who he was. It, was there like uh, one joke that you could share that you remember that he said that like just really encompasses that that sense of humor? I don't know. He was he was he and he would ex he would describe himself this way too. He's more of a sight gag person. So his humor was very quiet, like his spoken humor, very quiet. You had to wait for it, tons and just ridiculous things. But there's there's one uh, sight gag that he did. So Matt was um, in incredible physical shape. That man was half mountain goat. And he would just do these really silly things. And I'm not sure I can describe this accurately enough. But like, if you go to flex your muscle, your arm muscle, like Popeye, and okay. So you got to imagine that Matt was incredibly stacked and he would stick his thumb in his mouth and like blow up his muscles before he would flex. <laughs> and he was just dorky and silly. Fun-loving guy. That, that, 
Oh my gosh, just just the goofiest. <laughs> and you you get to like um, juxtapose that with this like very serious, quiet, um, not outspoken guy, just like breaking into dorkiness with his people. Well, I I like that, and uh, just just to wrap up, what would the setting be? Where would you guys want to have this dream? Like, it seems like you celebrate your birthdays together. You mean the the setting in the dream? Yeah, yeah. We like to go deep. <laughs> mm, gosh, I have to make choices. <laughs> I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the image that comes into my mind, which is a little bit fraught for me. But like, I would love a riverside, given the fact that the man drowned. I I'm surprised that my mind is like, can we go there? <laughs> wow. That's not always the best spot for me. But if anybody's also gonna lo- make me laugh at a river in a river it's yeah. also gonna be that oh wow i like that yeah. yeah you know i like that he's he seemed like an adventurous outdoorsy you know fit guy likes to tell jokes i like him already um yeah me let's, too megan sure. let's uh let's wrap up with your information your stuff i want people to uh, to hear your book again could you talk about uh, where they can reach you yeah so the hub of all things is the website it's refugeingrief.com you can find out information about the monthly writing your grief course. It's a really, really cool place. One of the things that's really hard about grief um, is the loneliness and the isolation and feeling like nobody gets you. So the writing your grief course is an amazing community um, that happens pretty much once a month. All the information is on the website. The book is It's Okay That You're Not Okay, Meeting Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand. You can find that in your independent booksellers and on Amazon um, or wherever else you get books. That book just turned a year old. So on Instagram, which Instagram at Refuge in Grief, we're doing a celebration of the book and um, where it's gone and who it's reached and how it's helping. So that's a pretty fun thing too. Well, that's pretty cool. And I really like that you've set up a little writing place for people. So, um, you know, if listeners want to check that out, please do. Um, check out our our stuff, our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. If you have Facebook, we have a uh, Grief Dreams Facebook group that you can uh, join and check out. We are also on Instagram and Twitter at grief dreams and uh, this podcast can be found on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, lots of other podcasting platforms. Um, we also have some videos going on uh, videos that are coming through on YouTube and Instagram uh, TV as well. Uh, so with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduced myself, you have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.